Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of Henry Ford and the Dodge Brothers and how their incredibly successful partnership in the early 1900s devolved into one of the most high-profile legal battles in American business history. It's a story of power, it's a story of control, and it's a story of the earliest days of the American automotive industry. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. This is one of those great stories in automotive history that just seems too good to be true, but it actually is, and we have the proof of the newspapers and the government documents and the court documents and everything else that went along with the partnership between Henry Ford and the Dodge Brothers to kind of prove its validity and the veracity of these stories. It is an interesting situation to consider two giant industrial companies kind of springing forth from a partnership when they were both in their embryonic stages, but that's exactly what this is. In many ways, it's the story of a rock band that started in a garage and then grew to worldwide fame before completely blowing apart at the seams and battling itself over things like money and control and creativity and everything else. And it involves three incredible people, John and Horace Dodge on one side and Henry Ford on the other, to a lesser extent, Henry Ford's son, Ed who at this time, by the time we tell the story, had become a fairly large figure in the Ford Motor Company, if only in the public sense, because the old man Henry Ford was certainly still pulling the levers and pulling the strings when we talk about the meat of this story, which occurs in 1916 to 1919. So what we have to do here is establish the partnership between the Dodge Brothers and Henry Ford. And if we went into the full depth of this story in every little nook and cranny, this would be a 12-hour long show. And for some of you, you're like, yes, make the 12-hour long show. I promise you, I'm not going to do that on this particular episode. So what we need to do is talk about what things were like in 1903 for the Dodge Brothers and for Henry Ford in general. For Henry Ford, he had been trying since 1896 to really get things up going in terms of an automotive manufacturing operation and he had failed a couple of times he had failed in his first couple of ventures Detroit being uh, a big city but not the biggest city in the world people knew who Henry was they understood he was very smart they also understood that if you backed this guy you were probably going to lose your shirt because everybody who had invested with him up to that 1903-1904 period had had that experience the companies were well thought out unfortunately Ford was an awful marketer, and he really did not know how to sell an automobile the way other companies were doing it at that time. It sounds funny to say, obviously, because uh, by the time the Model T is done with its run, it becomes one of the most amazing cars of all time. It's ubiquitous even to today's uh, equation to putting the world on wheels. He made untold sums and fortunes of money, but the car basically sold itself, and he as the company grew, had marketing people and everything else. But in the early days when he was trying to kind of carry the load himself, uh, Henry Ford just couldn't sell anything. He built uh, well-engineered cars, and he just expected people to buy them because they were that. And they didn't. On the other side of the coin, you have the Dodge brothers, John and Horace. And John and Horace Dodge um, are successful 
Detroit businessmen. They are rough around the edges, famously. You know, they get into fights, and they like to hang out with their workers in the bars after after the shift's out in the factory. And they went from making motorcycle, um, rather bicycle parts. They're a bicycle parts manufacturer. And then the brothers patent a, a ball bearing design that is kind of a, a sealed bearing that's going to help um, bearing life, and it's going to be very successful for them. They make those by the scads, and they start to make some real money. Then Ransomy Old starts the Oldsmobile Company, and he is looking for people to make parts, make transmissions, make engines for him because he doesn't have the capacity to do it all himself. Who does he call? He calls the Dodge Brothers because of their business and their respect in the machining realm. They are basically the first call that people in Detroit are making for this type of work. The contract with Oldsmobile, Ransomy Olds, I should say, uh, really rockets them financially into a very good place. At this point, in the early 1900s, the the Dodge brothers, despite the fact that they are not the most well-liked people in Detroit, are some of the richest people in Detroit. They're not quite the ultra super upper crust yet, but they're on their way. And, you know, people like the Dodge brothers with aspirations like this, guys that have climbed out of nothingness, that have built themselves up with their own guts and guile and their own hard work, um, they have aspirations. They want to be part of that, you know, very elite crowd. And the very elite crowd wants no part of the Dodge Brothers because, uh, <laughs> as I mentioned, they're hard scrabble. They drink a lot. They fight. Um, they're just they don't have the reputation as being refined social people. So in that respect, they're having a struggle uh, in that point to crack their way into the the upper crust of Detroit uh, royalty, if you will. And Detroit in 1900 to 1903 and certainly into the 19-teens and 20s is a city of exploding wealth. Um, this, was a, this was a working class city and continues to be, but we start to see enormous sums of money be made when the automobile industry really takes off and when it takes off in Detroit as its headquarters. So 1903 comes along. Henry Ford's knocking on doors. He's trying to raise some money up, trying to get something going on with this third iteration of a car company he wants to make. The Dodge Brothers are flush with cash. They've been making parts for, for Ransom E. Olds. They believe in the concept of the automobile. They can certainly see that a low-cost, simple car is one that is going to uh, likely make everybody involved a whole lot of money. So Henry Ford knocks on their door, they have meetings, they have discussions, and the Dodge Brothers, being the hard-driving guys that they are, agree to back Henry Ford for the total sum of $10,000. $3,000 of those dollars is cash money, $7,000 is of materials and products that they will build for him. So Ford now has some seed money, and they, they demand 10% of the company, and they demand the rights to all of the assets of the company in the event that it fails. So in 1903, Henry Ford has very few options and very few people willing to spend a dime with him. So when the Dodge brothers drive this very hard bargain for a 10% share of his company and for the potential right to own every one of the physical assets, including the buildings, the assembly lines, the machines, the everything, if it fails, he doesn't have a lot in the way of options. So, of course, he takes the deal. About 10 years from now, it's going to be very important to, to remember this deal when we tell the story because of that assets portion of the agreement. Think about this for a second and, and kind of park this in the back of your mind as we tell this story and as we continue to learn about it. The Dodge brothers wanted everything they needed to have a turnkey company to make automobiles if Henry failed at his. Henry Ford didn't necessarily see that warning sign in 1903 
that maybe these guys wanted to get in the same business he was in. And if he did see it, he was unable to act on it because he needed the money so bad, he probably just thought, hey, I'll take the risk and I'll do what I got to do. Not knowing what he was about to set out on in terms of an adventure, in terms of a transformational device that he was in the process of building that would change the world. Um, And ultimately, it would spawn a lot of competition, including the Dodges. We'll get there in a few minutes. But let's talk about what the Dodge brothers do for Henry Ford in those early days. So the very first kind of agreement, the very first contract that the Dodge brothers had with Henry Ford was the fact that uh, they supplied 650 chassis, which were chassis that had engines, transmissions, and axles to Henry Ford. And these were supplied uh, in 1903, and they were supplied at a cost of about $250 a piece. At this time, Henry Ford is selling the Model T for $850. Okay, so $250 uh, gets them a rolling chassis, and the Dodge Brothers built uh, basically every part of Model T's for Ford over the years except for the bodies. They didn't do body work, but they did all the mechanical stuff. Built the transmissions, built the engines, built the axles, put the chassis together, and shipped them over. They had about 150 guys working for them at this point. Ford had about 12 to 20 people working for him at this point, which is kind of amazing to think about, that the Dodge brothers were, um, in terms of their size and manufacturing operation, were way, way bigger than Ford actually was at the beginning. Obviously, the math would invert on this fairly quickly as things took off. So Ford builds an additional plant. Uh, he builds a plant on a, a street called Mack Avenue in Detroit. He has his normal plant on Hastings Street, and then he builds his second plant on Mack Avenue. The normal plant on Hastings Street is the cars that Ford is building himself. These are the cars that are, that are fully Ford manufactured. The Mack Avenue plant is basically built, is building the cars that Ford is getting the parts and pieces from outside suppliers. So Dodge wasn't the only company that was supplying parts and pieces to Ford, but they were the biggest company that was doing that. So if we can imagine, Ford has two plants, and he's cranking out these cars. Um, The cars at the Mack Avenue plant are the Dodge rolling chassis coming in. His employees are mounting the bodies, putting fuel tanks on, and of course squirting all the black paint on them, and then sending them out the back door to be sold. So the... Dodge investment at this time is some sweat equity. Obviously, they're uh, they're ramping their operation up to meet Ford's needs. Um, it was a three thousand dollar loan again to get to get this whole program off the ground, and um, it was really providing the foundation of Henry Ford to build the Model T to build the car that would change the world. So Ford early on, kind of funny, and this is where the relationship begins to get contentious. Uh, Very early on, he starts complaining. This is in the 1905 to 1907 time period. Ford is complaining about the quality of the parts and the quality of the chassis that the Dodge guys are sending over. They're saying that, hey, listen, I'm paying you by the chassis, by the piece that you're producing. The quality is really low because you're belting these things out so fast. You just want to get paid on a per piece basis. This would kind of kick off what would turn out to be a a simmering and then outright uh, just de-evolution of the relationship. This being said, Ford understood that the Dodge brothers were an incredibly necessary evil to the success of his business. 
So they go from that initial order of 650 chassis, and then in 1904, he cranks it up to about 800, and then it's another 400. And next thing you know, this turns into a real operation here. By 1912, the Dodge Brothers are supplying 180,000 transmissions, axle sets, all that type of stuff to Ford. So we go from, in a five-year span, we go from 600, 700 units a year to 1912 where there's 180,000 pieces that are being produced by the Dodge Brothers machining company and sending them over to the Ford Motor Company. The relationship becomes so important to both companies and of course because the Dodge Brothers have a 10% stake in the company, John Dodge becomes a director and vice president at the Ford Motor Company. So if you can believe this, John Dodge is on the board of directors and he is a vice president level executive with Ford. Well, his own company is manufacturing a ton of the parts that are making Model Ts. When we look at manufacturing of Model Ts, and we talk about uh, we talk about exactly how incredibly rapid the growth of the Model T was. We can talk about in 1910, about 20,000 cars produced. By 1914, that number is 202,000. 1915, 308,000. 1916, 500,000. 1917, 735,000. These are yearly production numbers, not aggregate. That is not an adding up of each year. That is what is being produced in each additional successive year. It's astonishing stuff. I mean, it's really, really astonishing stuff. So the business growth on both sides is incredible. During this period, of let's call it 1909 to say 1913, 1912 era, the Dodge brothers are going back to Henry Ford saying, hey, you know, we make all this stuff, so we kind of see the designs. We've helped design most of the parts in this car, and they say, you know, Henry, um, we could change a few things here and make this car way better. We can make um, uh, adaptations or engineering changes to the transmission or the axle or the chassis to make the Model T perform better. And famously, Henry Ford, as we all know, whether you're a casually passing fan of automotive history or not, you know that Henry Ford was um, believed that the Model T was perfection. He really, in, in no uncertain terms, Henry Ford believed that the Model T was absolutely non-improvable perfection effectively from when it first rolled out the back of a factory to when they made the 15th million one a decade and a half later. So with these suggestions being made by the Dodge brothers, uh, they annoyed Henry to no end because he wanted to be left alone in his business. Don't bother me. I don't need your help. This car is perfect. I'm selling them at the rate of 700,000 per year. Why would I change anything? The Dodge brothers are getting kind of annoyed by this program, but what they're not getting annoyed with is the fact that they are making millions of dollars in dividends from the Ford Motor Company. Their stock is paying them ridiculous amounts of money, as is every investor's stock in the Ford Motor Company. They're getting paid their annual dividends, and they're getting paid what are called special dividends. And I'm not an investment banker. I, I'm not a you know executive guy, but I can tell you and explain to you what this means. Dividends, obviously, are, are monies paid off of the profit a company makes if you're an investor. You invest in the company, the company profits, you get paid a dividend on your stock. And Ford, making so much money as it was, was not only paying the, the dividend 
that one would expect to make off of their stock, they're also paying a quarterly special dividend. What is a special dividend? When a company is making so much money that they really don't even know what to do with it or how to use it, they pay back to their investors. They pay back to their stockholders. So quarterly and quarterly special dividends are being paid. And I don't have specific dollar amounts on this. We're going to get into some specific dollar amounts a little bit later in the story. But suffice it to say that investors in the Ford Motor Company every quarter were making multiple times, if not 10 times more than what the average American was making to work a whole year. And when we get to 1916 through 1919, when the real crux of this story kind of comes to pass, you'll understand exactly the type of monies that we're talking about here. But suffice it to say, if you're an investor in Ford and it is 1913, 1914, and the company is selling a quarter million plus Model Ts a year, you are living on easy street. Your your stock investment is worth an incredible amount of money, which technically you don't get paid on that until you sell it, but you watch that stock price is skyrocketing. And your dividends, which is the money that's just like a kiss in the mail, it's showing up not only at the end of the year, your nice big fat dividend check, but also four times a year, you're getting special dividend payouts. Life is really, really good if you're a Ford investor. The main Ford investor, of course, was Henry Ford. And ironically, There was one group of people that Henry Ford hated beyond all else in his life, the stockholders of his company. Now let's get on a little bit about the business side of Henry Ford, his outlook about the Ford Motor Company, and why he hated investors so much. When it comes to the industrialists of the early 20th century, there was one thing that they really did not like, and that was anybody kind of interfering with their, what they perceived to be their God-given right to run their own companies any way that they pleased, whether that was how they treated their employees or how they invested the money or what decisions they made regarding kind of the growth future of their companies. And, you know, Andrew Carnegie and some of the other ones uh, of this era, uh, the Vanderbilts of the world, um, it, the Rockefellers of the world, and Henry Ford was right there with them. I mean, all these guys that uh, these foundational industrialists were absolutely ruthless in so many ways of how they operated their business. So investors to Henry Ford, he called them parasites, <laughs> and he hated them because he didn't feel as though he needed to answer to them. He didn't feel as though he was beholden to them in any way, and he certainly didn't feel as though he needed to alter his business practices or consult with them on things that he wanted to do. Henry Ford was the largest investor in his own company. So any decision that he made, he his logic was always, listen, if I make this decision, I'm not doing it to hurt the investors because I am the biggest investor. So if I decide to make a decision that the stockholders don't like, then I would be hurting myself more than I would be hurting them. So why why would this uh, why does this make any sense? This is a a system that is perfect and that means I can do as I please and because I'm the biggest investor, all of us make out in the end. Unfortunately, this is very flawed logic because when you're someone that owns uh, 58% of your company's stock and it is one of the most wealthy companies in the country, you're almost impervious to a lot of these decisions because you have so much money. So when you make a decision that quote unquote harms your stockholders and it harms you too, well, sure, yes, you're going you're gonna to feel it in your pocketbook. But if you are one of the richest men in the world, it's barely going to make a dent in the side versus your stockholders who are getting wealthy, of course, on the work that you're doing, 
but they certainly don't have the ability to rebound or to accept, absorb, whatever, a certain type of a loss that you may be trying to create or make a business decision that's going to ultimately cause the, uh, the business to suffer a little bit. The Dodge brothers were among this group of people that Henry Ford really didn't like. And it was killing him in the sense that he needed these guys because without them, he would not be able to have his production at the level he would need to continue to grow and continue to make the company uh, ever more successful. And the fact that he had John Dodge on his uh, kind of executive leadership team, which in some ways was... I don't want to say a sham, but Henry Ford made every decision that, that that was happening in that company. Anybody that was in the vice presidency role, whatever, yes, you had some some small window of, of influence in the company, but at the end of the day, the buck absolutely stopped with Henry Ford, and anything that ended up happening was approved or disapproved by Henry, no matter who you were, including his son Edsel, which is Edsel's life story is one of fair tragedy mainly because of who his dad was, but that's a different story for a different day. As we get to the 1913 time frame, and we have had this contentious relationship between John and Horace Dodge and Henry Ford, we see something really amazing happen. The Dodge brothers build a massive plant at the same time that Ford is planning his own massive plant, which is known as River Rouge, which will ultimately become probably the greatest industrial singular colossus that humankind has ever seen but in this time frame the dodge brothers build this really giant plant and they're they're supplying all of these parts to ford so it makes sense that they'd have this huge plant with multi-levels and a moving assembly floor and everything else but it also makes sense for another reason the dodge brothers are going to get into the car business and as we mentioned early in this story back when in 1903 so a decade before in 1903, the Dodge brothers, when they drove their deal with Henry, they wanted 10% of the company, and they wanted all the physical assets if it went out of business. Why? Because it, I believe that in 1903, the Dodge brothers were thinking, we're going into the car business. Sooner rather than later, if it comes up, we'll, we'll take his factories and we'll start building cars. If not, we'll bide our time. We'll learn how this business works. We'll learn how to perfect, improve the mechanical end of this business. And when it becomes our turn, to open, an event, to open a factory, to open a, a brand, we'll do it. Well, 1913, John Dodge publicly announces that he will no longer serve on the board of the Ford Motor Company. He will no longer be a vice president. He's going to leave the company. And he also says that they're going to stop manufacturing parts for Ford and that they're going to go in and open their own brand of cars. And this is an incredible announcement for so many reasons. Ford who was kind of long suspicious of the Dodge brothers was now furious because he had built these guys a, a, a wealthy fortune. And not only that, the thing that really killed Henry Ford and what's going to send the story into another gear is the fact that he had to continually pay the Dodge brothers a dividend on their stock. They owned 10% of his company. He was paying them special dividends and all of that money was going into funding a competing car brand. It is, you can look at this story two ways. You can look at it as, as Henry Ford is a sympathetic figure, which to be very honest, Henry Ford is the sympathetic figure in like no stories of the guy's life. He is one of the great um, conflicting figures in American history because of what he accomplished versus who he was. Henry Ford very rarely looks like the victim in anything. 
In this case, maybe he is. Or you can look at it from the other side and say, hey, listen, the Dodge brothers tried. They tried for years to tell Henry Ford, I know how to make this car better, Henry. I know how we can do a better job at this. And they kept getting blown off. I respect the Dodge brothers in this sense because this is a massive risk, a huge risk. They had the golden goose. And in theory, they would have had the golden goose for many, many years to come. But then they decided to go out on their own. And, you know, to the to the Dodge brothers' credit, they looked around and said, hey, listen, we're basically a single customer business. And you don't have to be Warren Buffett or a, a business genius to understand that when you have a company that is in this manufacturing-style business and your whole your whole livelihood depends on the whims of Henry Ford, you realize that that's not a good long-term plan. So 1913, John Dodge says, I'm out. Peace. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. This giant factory that they had built kind of under the auspices of creating parts for Ford um, was, was moved into automotive production. They knew what they were doing, and they built the Dodge Brothers cars there, which... The Dodge Brothers cars were amazing for their time frame. These cars that began uh, being sold in the 1914-1915 time frame, very good. They took the Model T. They didn't copy it. That's that's the best thing about, to me, the, the, the best thing about the Dodge Brothers stuff early on and how they approached this. They didn't copy the Model T. They built a much better, more powerful, more robust, more comfortable version of the Model T. You couldn't look at a Dodge Brothers touring car and say, well, that's a Model T. But what you looked at it, you saw some similarities. They didn't go too crazy on, you know, gussing the thing up or making it very opulent. But they concentrated on the things that Henry Ford had concentrated on that they understood people wanted. They wanted very tough cars that could handle the horrible roads of the day that would run on whatever uh, awful gas that was being used. I mean, the engine had four to one compression. For those of you that are not in the engine realm, Four to one compression means that the engine would pretty much burn, would pretty much run on whiskey if they wanted it to. It would burn anything. So the Dodge Brothers, and in fact, in their early sales campaigns, the Dodge Brothers create a word to sell their car, a word that you will hear in almost every single automotive ad, even today, 104, 105 years later. That word is dependability. The word dependability did not exist before it was used in marketing materials for Dodge cars in the teens. So pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. Henry Ford clearly did not. And so Henry Ford goes into this mode, an obsession mode, of destroying the Dodge brothers. And he does so in the only way that he kind of knows how. And really only in the way that a guy who was a massive industrialist in the the 19-teens could do seizes control of his company's finances and decides to do two things. One, he's going to cut the monthly dividend down to 5%. Was way up over 5%. He's going to chop that down to 5% and he's going to completely stop the special dividend program. The reason he's doing this is, is very simple. He's trying to choke the Dodge brothers out of money to make sure that their company fails. And he knows that without this large dividend that he's been paying out per month and the dividend the special dividend program he knows that these guys are gonna these guys are gonna founder they still own 10 percent of the company though and so the other things he starts to do he says okay well let's let's look at this the ford motor company in 1916 had 207 million dollars in sales 
They made $60 million in profit, and they had $53 million in cash in the bank. These are numbers that are staggering for that time period, just off the charts. And if you convert them into today's money, this is billions and billions of dollars. So the special dividend program, which is designed to disperse some of that $53 million bucks that's sitting in the, in the bank back to the stockholders, is canceled. So Ford says, yeah, I'm going to use that money to build all these factories, and I'm going to start paying my workers five bucks a day, and oh, by the way, I'm slashing the price of the Model T. And the investors instantly freak out because, one, they think it's their money. They think they're due their money. And up until this point in the business of American industry, it was their money. It was simply the way it worked. And now Henry Ford says, nah, now I'm in charge of all that, and I'm going to spend the $53 million the way that I feel it needs to be spent. And, uh, hey, by the way, you know, I'll, uh, I'll let you know what you're going to get paid here, but it ain't coming out of the bank account. I'm going to use all that money to help grow the company. So the investors do what investors do. They get together, and they decide that uh, after trying to negotiate with Henry Ford, they are going to file a lawsuit against him and try to uh, force them to be paid the money that uh, they feel they are owed. As Henry Ford is going along over the course of time, we can watch the results of what happens when the investors attack Henry Ford because we see that we see it in the price of the Model T. In 1912, he was selling the Model T for $590. Then in 1913, it was $525. And then we get into this kind of lawsuit period. In the Dodge Brothers period, it goes from $440 down to $390 down to $345. This is all the while he's raising wages for his workers to an unprecedented $5 a day. People think he's trying to bankrupt the company on purpose. People think he's trying to run the margins down so thin that he doesn't have to pay the stockholders anything. And people are pretty much right. I mean, it's very transparent as to what he was trying to do. Harm the Dodge brothers and make sure that his own company uh, is run so thin that he doesn't have to be on the whim of stockholder decisions. We look at the Dodge Brothers Company. In 1915, they make 45,000 cars. 1916, they make 71,000. 1917, they make 90,000. 1918, they make 62,000 cars. Down year for everybody in 1918. So the end result of this is the Dodge Brothers are not ultimately harmed by Henry Ford's malfeasance. He's trying to choke them out. They're kind of beating him at his own game in terms of survival. They're nowhere near as big as he is. They do fall on that number two, number three manufacturer in the country. They're making piles of money. And they are about 10% the size of the Ford Motor Company. When you look at production numbers versus each company year after year, they're about 10% the size of Ford. And yet, Henry Ford cannot get this idea out of his mind that he hates the Dodge Brothers He despises the fact he has to pay them anything, and they still own 10% of his company. So now we get to 1918, and Henry Ford finds another crazy way to try to screw the Dodge Brothers over, and even this one, he fails at again. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts, as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, 
Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So by 1918, Henry Ford has decided that he is done with the Dodge Brothers. He is done with investors. And the only way he is going to continue on with his business is if he has complete control of the company and isn't uh, responsible for answering to anybody else but himself. So, and again, this is the type of stuff that you just legally can't do anymore. And as it turns out, you legally couldn't do in uh, 1918 and 1919 either. So Henry Ford devises a plan. He looks at the value of his company, and he understands that the stock price is way up there. Um, he understands that even he, with his immense wealth and his family, they don't have the resources to necessarily just buy everybody back out of the business. So what they need to do is they need to come up with a way to basically manipulate the stock price down so they can get some bankers to come with them, and they can buy all the stock back. By this point in the company's history, Henry Ford owns Henry Ford and Edsel own about 58%, 59% of the company, which means there's 41% of the company out there in the hands of private investors. Most of those private investors have small share holdings of a couple hundred shares. Uh, you know, and again, this is real money because those shares are valued at over twelve thousand dollars a piece in 1918. So we're not talking about small sums. Even if you're a very small investor in terms of having a handful of shares, this is enormous amounts of money in that time period. So what about what do you do with the big guys? What do you do with the John and Horace Dodges that own 10% of the company, which would be a crushing amount of money to try and spend or try and try and buy them off at that high stock price? Well, you decide that you're going to drive the stock price of your own company into the floor. How do you do that if you're Henry Ford? Well, the first thing you do is that on December 30th, 1918, you go to your board of directors, you stand up, and you say this, in the words of Henry Ford, I hereby resign the office of president of this company to take effect on the close of business December 31st, 1918. As you know, I have intended to take this step for some time for a number of reasons, the most important of which is that my time must necessarily be given to other work less thoroughly organized than this, and I also wish to be relieved of all responsibilities and obligations arising from holding a salaried office in the company. It is my desire to devote my time to building up other organizations with which I am connected. I shall be glad to remain on the board and to assist in an advisory way when is requested. I desire to thank the board and the officers and staff for their cordial cooperation always given to me and to which is due so greatly the success of this company, yours very truly, Henry Ford, President, Ford Motor Company. Can you imagine the thud that landed in that room? Can you imagine the board of directors and the immediate knot that ended up in their stomach when they st stood there and watched Henry Ford tell them that he was quitting his job at the company effective the next day? This would make international headlines and those headlines had one immediate effect which was to make the stock price crater people freaked out if you don't have henry ford what do you have with the ford motor company do you have anything 
He was the public face of the company, the public voice of the company. He was one of the most respected men in America. And he was quitting his job to do what? The world wouldn't know what he was going to do for another couple of months, but there's words that he laid in this statement like landmines to scare people, particularly the investors. Those words, the sentence that reads, it is my desire to devote my time to building up other organizations with which I am connected. What could that possibly mean? The mind begins to race. What does it mean that Henry Ford is connected to other organizations? And you know what the Dodge brothers are thinking. They're thinking, oh, I hate this guy. Look at what this guy's trying to do to me, and look at what this guy's trying to do to us. They knew exactly what these aims and goals were of Henry Ford, and it was to take money away out of their pocket and to harm their business. If they had any doubts about that, which I don't think they did, and if the world had any doubts about what Henry Ford's intentions were in the automotive industry after announcing his retirement from Ford in December of 1918, they learned about it in the Los Angeles Examiner newspaper on March 5, 1919. Henry Ford sat down with a reporter and just started dropping information bombs on the world. Title of the story, Henry Ford Organizing Huge New Company to Build Better, Cheaper Car. Subheadline, manufacturer to join with Sun in constructing autos for $250 or $350, devises machine during rest in California. Plant will be established in state. The opening paragraph, Mr. Henry Ford has underway a business to move the most dynamite importance of the motor car business and the world of finance. He is to enter anew the making of cars. His idea is to make a better car than he now turns out and to market it at a low price of somewhere between $250 and $350 and to do it through another company than the Ford Motor Company. Once again, you can hear the alarm bells. Now they're really going off. It was one thing to say that I was leaving the company if I'm Henry Ford. It is wholly another to say, oh, by the way, I left the company to compete with the company and build cars for half the price or less, and basically about 30% of the price or a quarter of the price of what the Dodge brothers were doing. So this becomes international news. I'll continue on with the story here from the Los Angeles Examiner, March 5th, 1919. His son, Mr. Edsel Ford, is president of the Ford Motor Company, but will surely join his father in the new undertaking. Oh my God, Edsel's leaving too. This would mean the abandonment by the Fords of the present company, which, without exaggeration, has been about the most phenomenal moneymaker in the country. If you had invested $5,000 in the original company, it would now represent to you in good red gold, or its equivalent, something like $80.5 million besides dividends close to $4 million. That cannot be done by you and the new company because there will be no stock in that company. Mr. Ford believes, knows in fact, that he can produce the same results with his new company. What will become of the present enormous company, which in one way or another has about $170 million in capital resources and an investment is a question that will prove of great interest to great many people. I have decided on the new undertaking, said Mr. Ford at his Altadena, California home, and as the matter stands, I intend to go ahead with it. This idea developed from the recent court decision whereby I am obliged to distribute about $19 million of accumulated profits. My idea of a successful business is to have it well healed with cash. But wait, 
what are we talking about here? Why is why is this guy talking about paying nineteen million dollars out? Well, once again, we have to go back to the Dodge brothers. And the contentious level of this relationship went from them being angry about Ford doing things that they perceived to damage them and their financial position in the company to some of the highest courts in the land because the Dodge brothers sued Henry Ford. Back in 1916, the Dodge brothers filed a suit against the Ford Motor Company and said that they were basically operating against the interest of their investors. And so this suit went through a couple of different levels and actually made it to the Michigan Supreme Court. And the Michigan Supreme Court found in the favor of the complainants. They found uh, in, in, in favor of the Dodges and the other people that were involved in this suit. And basically the argument that the Justice Russell C. Ostrander made in the 1919 decision was as follows. A business corporation is organized and carried on primarily for the profit of stockholders. The power of the directors are to be employed for that. The discretion of directors is to be exercised in the choice of means to attain that end and does not extend a change in the end itself to the reduction of profits or to the non-distribution of profits among stockholders in order to devote them to other purposes. Simply put, the judge said, this is a company, not a charity. And the company is responsible to pay the shareholders what they are supposed to earn. It is not the determination of a single man to say, I'm not paying the shareholders anymore. So when Henry Ford stopped paying those special dividends and when he cut down the monthly dividend on the stock, that is when this lawsuit was filed. And it took three years of back and forth and three years to get it up the chain of the court system to get to the Michigan Supreme Court before the decision was made. That decision being made in 1919, Henry Ford has to pay the $19 million, and when he has to pay the $19 million, that is when he goes into this scorched earth mode and goes to the newspapers and says, I'm going to start building my own cars, and they're going to cost half as much as everybody else's, and I am basically, in my own roundabout way, saying that I am going to bury every other auto manufacturer in this company, or in this country. I will continue with the next paragraph in this story just to illustrate this $19 million decision and how badly it infuriated Henry Ford and what it kind of kicked into gear next. We continue on with the story. $19 million court decision induces financier to plan new project. A quote from Henry Ford. And my idea about court decisions is that there never was one that did not help the people. A good decision, certainly. A bad one, nonetheless, in the long run. Take my own case. The public, because of what I consider apparently a wrong decision, will as a result get a better car, a cheaper car, and one more fully up to date than before or is in existence now. The present Ford car was designed 12 years ago. This is why I favor the League of Nations as a final court of the world, an international court. Its decisions would always render the world the best service and thereby the best service to the people. Because the court principle is the only supreme principle that the world has, I feel that my contention that the decisions work to the public good will be proved in my own case. That good or bad, as the decision may be, the public always reaps the benefits. As to the $19 million decision, it caused me to make this move because of my principle to have plenty of ready cash to do business. If you have the cash, you discount your bills, you draw interest, and its mere presence enables you in many ways to reduce the cost of production and thereby make more profit and pay better wages. 
Of that $19 million, I have to distribute myself at out $12 million, but I cannot in justice to myself put that back into the business because I have no way to oblige those who own other portions to so employ it. As I do not believe in subsidiary companies, I cannot resort to that method which many financiers employ. You heard that right. The $19 million decision against Ford resulted in Ford having to pay himself 12 of the $19 million because he was the largest investor in the company. The remaining $7 million got distributed to the other investors. It's all so hilarious and it's all so bizarre, but it's the truth. So now that Henry Ford has had to pay the $19 million, he has lost the court case, this is where he decides enough is enough, I'm going to make this announcement, which he makes, and it kills the stock price momentarily. Because as the word gets out, nobody actually believes he's going to do this. And as more reporters start paying attention to things at Ford, more news stories come out that say, you know what, he claims to have resigned in December of 20, or rather 1918, but he's still going in there. When they ask people questions about stuff in the company, people that supposedly no longer had Henry Ford as an overseer, they can't give them answers. So it becomes clear in this December to March time frame that Henry Ford, despite his public resignation, is still running the Ford Motor Company. And it also becomes clear that Henry Ford, despite these outlandish stories of him opening new companies and selling cars for $250 a piece, that ain't going to happen. So Ford understands that he has basically one option left, and that is to effectively pay these sons of bitches, these people that he hates, these parasites of stockholders, pay them to go away. And that is exactly what Henry Ford does. And by the end of 1919, Henry Ford owns all the stock in the Ford Motor Company. He hires outside banks and he hires outside people to start calling every investor and start to make them deals, make them offers on the stock that they hold. Some people hold 300 shares. One woman held 325 shares of the stock. They bought it from her at $12,500 a share. She made $4 million in the span of three months selling this stock, the equivalent of about $46 million in 2020 money. In three months. Obviously, she was well-heeled to start with, but she was uh, instantaneously likely within the top 1% of wealth in this country within three months. The Dodge brothers were the special case. There was two, you know, there was two kind of people here. The Dodge brothers were a major, uh, were a major investor as well uh, as another kind of uh, single investor, a guy named James Cousins. So Cousins and Dodge uh, were the two the two big ones. They were the two richest uh, kind of entities they had to deal with. And the Dodge brothers were just getting run over with these anonymous phone calls, offering them X amount per share, trying to sell everything off. And they held on to it for as long as they could. And finally, probably because they got tired of the process, and finally because they realized, hey, this guy ain't going to give up till he gets it. The Dodge brothers sold their stock in 1919, and they sold it for $25 million dollars. In that time frame, $25 million, they sold their stock. And remember, 16 years prior to that, they invested $10,000, 3000 of which was actual money. 7000 of the 10 was stuff they made, physical assets. 
I'm not sure there has ever been a return on investment in the automotive industry, despite its emotional hardships, despite its clashes, despite its craziness, despite its fighting. I'm not sure there has been a more incredible return on investment to anybody than the Dodge brothers got out of Henry Ford. From 1919 to 1956, the Ford family would own every single share of stock in the company. 1956, Ford goes back on the market, if you will. But Henry Ford was obsessed with that control. He was obsessed with having 100% authority over his business. And he got it. For better or worse, Henry Ford got it between 1919 until the day he died. That company was under the control of his family. And as for the Dodge brothers, they absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, became part of that elite upper crust they had always dreamed about becoming part of. The equivalent of a quarter billion dollars in their pocket from Henry Ford, a profitable automaker of their own, and money coming in from other investments, they were beyond their wildest dreams successful. And within effectively one year of becoming that wealthy, of sitting on top of the world, they would both be dead. Remember, 100 years ago, there was a Spanish influenza pandemic that swept across the globe, and it certainly swept across the United States. And that pandemic in the United States had three waves, the third wave of which happened in 1920. At the New York Auto Show, John and Horace Dodge both caught the Spanish flu. Both guys would die within months of each other, very shortly after contracting the flu, leaving the company that they had built to their widows. And those widows would have their inheritance of the 250, or the 25 million, I should say, the equivalent of the 250 today. And all the other investments and all the other work and the profits that were being made on Dodge automobiles. And a few years down the road, they would take that company and sell it to some guy named Chrysler for $146 million. Henry Ford would go on, of course, to do many, many more incredible things. The Ford Motor Company continues to be one of the great industrial standards of the world. Henry Ford's vision of the perfect factory that I mentioned earlier, the River Rouge plant, was built during this time of battle with his investors and with his stockholders. And this plant would be unmatched in human history, maybe it was unmatched in human history to the point that he built it, and it has been unmatched since, and I'm not sure anything will ever compare to it. But the story of the River Rouge plant, which is probably suited for another episode in a very short time frame, the reason that Henry Ford felt this to be the perfect plant is because his ships that he owned with iron ore that came out of mines that he owned was loaded into one end of the plant into a steel mill, and at the other end of the plant, a Model T would emerge. It was the first completely vertically integrated manufacturing facility in the world. From the raw ore to the raw wood to the raw steel, everything that happened in that plant was under the control of Henry Ford. Perhaps that's why he loved it so much. That's the story of Henry Ford and the Dodge brothers and how their incredible relationship built two American car companies while simultaneously being incredibly contentious and ultimately self-destructive. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. We'll be back soon with another look back into the world of automotive history, automotive manufacturing, and cool gearhead stuff. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for listening.
This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. 